you want to make your way back to your seat, <clears throat> take out your copy of God's word, turn to Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11. Again, we're going to be looking at a whole chapter this week. Matthew chapter 11. I'm going to read the text for us. It would be uh, verses 1 to 30. This is, uh, this is what God's word says. When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now when John the Baptist heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered him, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk, lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out in the wilderness to see? <clears throat> a reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you're willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. But to what shall I compare this generation? It's like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you and you didn't dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. For John came, neither eating nor drinking, and they say, he has a demon. The son of man came, both eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they didn't repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you've hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor, and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Father, this is your word, and we are thankful for it. Speak to our hearts as we hear this word and meet it in our hearts with your Holy Spirit. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Sometime last year, uh, as 
we were as elders praying just for the church and through the ministry of the church, uh, a vision kind of came into my head for what God would do among us. And <clears throat> I still don't feel like I have a really smooth way to say it, but, but my hope, one of my hopes for Shalford is that we would have uh, encounters between the real God and our real selves. And I think the most difficult part of that equation is dealing with our real selves. Uh, but nonetheless, I want those two things to happen. I want real people to walk through the doors <clears throat> and feel the invitation and the freedom to be honest about who you are, to be honest about your real self. And that then we can bring that real self into the presence of the real God and meet the real God. We would see who God really is. And I think that would change everything for us. And what we see in Matthew 11 is people encountering the real God. And then we see their responses to it. And we see this kind of spectrum of responses. Now the way we've been walking through Matthew is we've been taking large chunks. We could just as easily preach maybe three or four sermons out of this one chapter. And if we did that and we took a smaller chunk, it would allow us to focus on the text in different ways and probably pull out some different kind of detail. And if we just took maybe the first 15 or 16 verses, the sermon might look a little different. Or if we just took the last five or six verses, the sermon might feel a little different. But taking them all together forces us to kind of compare and contrast these different narratives that Matthew and the Holy Spirit working through Matthew decided to put all together. And so part of what we see in Matthew 11 is how these different people respond when they meet and encounter the real Jesus. What do they do? How do they respond? And how do we see ourselves in their responses? The first kind of response we see is the first 15 or so verses with John the Baptist. And I think what we see is what it looks like to seek the real Jesus. This is what it looks like to seek the real Jesus. We see John the Baptist, who is a prophet, who is the last of the prophets, who came after hundreds of years of silence, not just to prophesy about truth or apply the truth to God's wayward people like many of the Old Testament prophets did. He was a prophet who came with a specific purpose that Jesus goes to great lengths to, uh, to defend John to the crowds. John came as a prophet to prepare the way of God who was coming to earth in the person of Jesus. And Jesus says, there's no one born of women who's great. I mean, John is incredible. He's a prophet of God. He walks with God. I mean, Jesus clearly has a high praise for John, but when we see John in Matthew 11, we see John questioning, I'll even say doubting Jesus. We see him wondering. Ultimately, though, we see him seeking Jesus because he takes his doubts, and instead of just sitting in his prison cell, those confines, wherever he exactly was at this time, he wants to go ask Jesus these questions. So he's doubting, he's questioning, he's wondering, and then Jesus is defending him to the crowd saying, look, he is greater than all born of women. He is the greatest of the prophets. Like this is John the Baptist. He's not, just because he's coming and asking me these questions doesn't mean he's cast off. Having these doubts and having these questions and wondering these things does not mean that he's somehow out of the bounds of the kingdom of God. There's a little uh, line there where he says, where Jesus is telling John's disciples, go and tell John what you hear and see. And then he, he kind of lays out maybe five different 
kinds of people that Jesus has been ministering to. The blind can see, the lame can walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have good news preached to them. This has all sorts of allusions to Isaiah in it. Isaiah 35 verses five and six and Isaiah 61 both reference these groups of people that the coming Messiah would minister to. That the coming Messiah would proclaim good news to the poor. That he would do these kinds of miracles and good works as he's bringing the kingdom. And so he's essentially telling the disciples to go tell John, you see my ministry. I'm doing the things that the Messiah is supposed to do. He's implicitly saying, yes, I'm him. Now, part of what John probably struggled with is John's message was high on judgment. High on repentance because judgment is coming with the kingdom of God. And then the Messiah comes, Jesus baptizes Jesus, or John baptizes Jesus, and then John's looking at Jesus' ministry going, where's the judgment? Like this, I, I thought you were going to kind of pick up and fulfill more of what I was saying, and you seem to have, Jesus does, right, in the gospel, seem to have maybe a bit of a longer leash than John would have had. Jesus seems to be ministering with this long view of patience. You think if John had perfect wisdom and knowledge of all that Judas would do, what, what do you think John would have done with that? Jesus was very patient. Jesus was very um, gracious and moved towards people. And, and, and John's watching and he's going, are you the, like I'm looking at your works, are you the one? Are you the one? What I love about this is G John takes his doubts and his questions straight to Jesus. Part of being a finite human means you will not know everything. Can we just sit with that? That's part of being a human. So you come to Christ, you're not gonna know. You're not gonna know everything in this word. You're not gonna know everything that's gonna happen in your life. A thousand years ago, there was a theologian named Anselm. You heard me right, 1,000 years ago. According to my kids, that's how long it will be between now and when the pool opens. <laughs> so very long time ago. There's a theologian named Anselm, and he defined theology like this. Faith seeking understanding. Faith seeking understanding. Why does that matter that that's what theology is, faith seeking understanding? Because we enter into a relationship with Jesus by faith. That does not mean a blind leap. What that means is a dependent trust. We enter into a relationship with Jesus by faith, a dependent trust on a person. When you enter into any relationship with any person, you don't know everything about that person. You don't. Whether it's the best friend you grew up with, whether it's your spouse of many years, you did not know everything about that person when you entered into a relationship, and you don't know everything about that person today. You, that's just part of being in a relationship. You enter into a relationship where there's codependence, there's this interdependence and love and mutual respect and conversation where you reveal yourself to each other. When we enter a relationship with Jesus, we don't know everything about him, which means there are gonna be things that come up that we don't know, that surprise us, that shock us, that uh, the word that Jesus uses there in verse six, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Now that's interesting, what does that mean? Offended by me. I'm not a Greek scholar, but I have books that tell me what Greek words mean, and the Greek word for offended is skandalizo. That is, scandalized by me. 
that is so shocked and even maybe angry at what you find in Jesus that it causes you to stumble into unbelief. Jesus is very scandalous in a way that he's not what we always expect him to be. So when we enter into this relationship with Jesus, I hope we would have the courage to seek the real Jesus and understand that in that journey of faith, the dependent, trusting relationship with Jesus would then be seeking understanding. And it wouldn't be an understanding that's seeking faith. You will never exhaust an understanding of who Jesus is. You'll never exhaust an understanding of this word. But Jesus invites us into a a faith-fueled relationship with him and then gives us the freedom to seek understanding. He gives us the freedom to ask questions we don't have the answers to. He gives us the freedom to be the greatest of the prophets, the most honored of all the prophets because of how close he was to the coming of the Messiah. And he gives the freedom to John to say, are you really the one? So at the very least, a one-to-one application of this means you can come to Jesus today, right now, and say, are you the one? Like there's way more room than you might realize in the presence of God for doubt and for questions and for seeking understanding that you don't have. But the question is when we're doubting, when we're seeking those, that understanding, when we're in this faith-fueled relationship and then we're realizing we don't know everything and there's parts that feel scandalous or even offensive to us about who Jesus is, the question we have to ask is are we seeking the real Jesus? Are we seeking the real Jesus? Does Jesus always fit into our expectations? Does the Jesus we believe in always happen to agree with us, vote like us, feel safe in the neighborhoods we feel safe in? Does the Jesus we seek bust out of the expectations for what we wanted for someone who would save us? See, we're gonna come to Jesus with all sorts of questions and concerns and confusion. But for us, I think the invitation is, are we willing to bring those things to him and then let him define the categories, let him define the answers? That's, that's tough, it's really challenging. And I think that's part of why this passage in Matthew 11 is in the book. I mean, what a greater example. If this isn't just some name, like there's plenty of miracles that are nameless, people that Jesus is encountering, but not this one. This is John the Baptist that's asking these questions. And I, I'm asking those questions, right? I wrestle with things all the time that I realize I don't have the answer to. And I, and I might never. And I really don't like that. But the beauty of Jesus is that he's, he can handle your questions. He can handle that. The question for you is, are you willing to seek the real Jesus? Are you willing to let him give you an answer or give you no answer? Are you willing for him to set the pace and the standard for what he's revealing to you about who he is? Seeking the real Jesus is what John was doing. Because he wanted to know, are you the one? Are you the one? So we see uh, this story of someone seeking the real Jesus and really wrestling with, with who he is. And, and he uses that word, uh, offended, scandalized. And moving on from there, Jesus comes to a pretty pointed uh, couple of passages where we see people rejecting the real Jesus. So if John's seeking the real Jesus, we, we also see whole cities and towns that are rejecting 
the real Jesus. Rather than seeking the real Jesus, many of these people encountered him and rejected him. Jesus says uh, in verses 20 to 24, he essentially uses some comparison to say, you're worse now than the worst of the cities in the Old Testament. Tyre, Sidon, Sodom. Look, even as awful as they are, that notorious reputation, they would have repented if they saw what you've seen. They were known as sinful places full of sinful, rebellious people. And what Jesus is saying is you've seen my works firsthand, not just heard testimony about God, but you've actually met, you've met God in me is what Jesus is saying. And you've rejected me. And so judgment awaits you because if you're gonna turn away from the author of life, you'll face death. Why are they rejecting Jesus? I think it goes back to that word used in verse six because Jesus is offensive. He's scandalous. Jesus is not easy to accept. So what is it that's offensive about Jesus? It's not his good works. There are many people today that under the name and banner of Jesus proclaim all sorts of good works. There are, and they don't proclaim salvation. They don't proclaim the one way to the one true God. But they talk about how Jesus was a great moral teacher to which I wanna direct them to the Gospel of John and say, what do you make of the I am statements? Because Jesus says some pretty crazy things if you think he's just a good moral teacher. So it couldn't have been just his good works that were offensive, right? What was it about Jesus that was so offensive? Here's just a few that come to mind. Put yourself in the context of facing someone like this. Jesus is offensive because he claims total authority. So any other authority in the first century, here's a man walking around saying, I'm king, that's offensive. He's offensive to religious people because he tells them that they don't just need a better example or more precise rules or a better work ethic to live a well-ordered life. Religious people would love some extra rules to apply with more precision the religion they follow. But Jesus is offensive to them because he tells them, that's not what you need. You actually need a savior. He's also offensive to religious people because of the company that he keeps. We saw that a few chapters ago. He's offensive to the cities of the world Because he tells them they need to turn and repent from the way they're living and turn to the living God. He's offensive because he tells us that we have to forsake everything to follow him. When he comes, he takes over everything. He doesn't come just to be our help or aid our plans. This is what he means when he says the kingdom uh, the kingdom has suffered violence and the violent take it by force. That, that's kind of a first century like saying and idiom that doesn't really translate really well, but it essentially is means when it comes in, it comes in like a violent storm. And you're either gonna submit to it and try to go along with it or it's going to crush you. It's like getting caught in the riptide when you're swimming in the ocean. You don't fight it, you know? If you plan on going to the beach in a thousand years like we do, it's good for you to know this. Don't fight that. When it starts pulling you out, that undertow starts pulling you out, and it's like, don't fight. You need to go with it and swim with it, and you'll eventually be able to get down the beach and get back to uh, land a little bit. But if you try to fight that, 
You're, you're, that's how people drown. The kingdom of God is much the same way. When Jesus comes in, it's offensive because he is coming to take over everything. Hey, Jesus is offensive to me. Johnny Day, he's offensive to me because I want to maintain some semblance of control over my life. And he tells me that's not going to work. How dare you? Jesus is offensive to those of us who've always earned everything in life. And now we're told we can't earn anything about the kingdom of heaven. And we're offended at how he just gives it away to people who seems like they don't deserve it. We're like those laborers who worked the whole day in the parable. They've worked since morning. And then he went out at like 4 p.m. and hired somebody to work an hour and we got the same pay. We say, how dare you give them? Do you know how long, we're the older brother, do you know how long I've served you? And you're gonna give somebody else the same as me? Do you know how good I am for the, I served under a pastor that I heard sit in senior staff meetings with over 100 staff at his church and say to people, I've earned the right to make a decision like this. And you know what I say to that? Damn that thought. That is, that is anti-gospel. That is, Jesus is offensive to people like that. And you know what Jesus says to thinking like that? Get out. You have no place in my kingdom. And he's gonna say in just a minute, thank you, God, that you've hidden it from wise people. Why? Because Jesus is offensive to people that think they can figure out life and control life on their own. Jesus is offensive to those of us who've tried our best and lived a good life and have some bit of a resume. And then we're told that none of it matters when we're getting into the kingdom of God. Jesus is offensive when he looks at our resume of good look, of good works, and, we, and then he says, this is it. This is not gonna earn you a place in my kingdom. You've not earned your way into this. This is a free gift of grace to be invited to spend forever with me. And we're offended when he tells us all of our hard works are as filthy rags before him. And it leads some to reject the real Jesus. But the last section this morning is a glorious one. It's finding the real Jesus. I didn't know what word to use there, like receiving the real Jesus or, or seeking, you know, you get the real Jesus, but I think finding might be a good one. Because he starts off this section and he says in verse 25, thank you, Father, that you've hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. The ones who find the real Jesus, who are they? Who are the ones that are not offended by the real Jesus? We've talked about those who are, me, me and my flesh, super offended. Who are the ones that aren't offended by the real Jesus? Uh, a good list would be in verse five. I bet the blind aren't. I bet the lame aren't when Jesus tells them to walk. I bet the lepers aren't offended when they get reacclimated into community. I, I bet the deaf who hear the voices of their loved ones for the first time, I bet they're not offended. The dead who have seen the other side and then are brought back, I bet they're not offended. The poor who have no good news. I bet they're not offended. 
I bet they're not offended because for them, the message of Jesus was new life. I mean, to be blind your entire life and then be gifted sight is essentially to be gifted new life. To be deaf and you can't hear anything and then to be gifted all of a sudden ears that work is to be gifted new life. You can't walk anywhere. And a man comes to you and says, your sins are forgiven, rise and walk. That's new life for you. So who is it that's not offended by Jesus? Now, I think it's those who are in need. I think it's those who know they're dependent on others in this life. See, the hierarchy for knowing Jesus that he lays out in Matthew eleven twenty five. the hierarchy for knowing Jesus is upside down from the hierarchy of the world. The hierarchy of the world says the powerful continue to get more powerful, the strong get stronger, the rich get richer, and those in power, and those who have money, and those who have things, and those who know how to get by, get more and more and more. And Jesus says, in the kingdom, they get less and less and less. Why is that? And I'm brought back to the very first beatitude we talked about almost a year ago now, when he says, bless are those who are poor in spirit, because the poor in spirit and the literal poor have learned the poverty principle. They don't have things to depend on in this life. But the people who are powerful in this life have learned to be independent, to get things on their own have learned to pull themselves up by their own bootstraps. And Jesus says, those are not the kind of people who can receive the kingdom. God is not giving knowledge of himself to those with the skills and the smarts in this life. It's upside down the way he reveals himself to people. And when we find the real Jesus, we actually find the real God because he uses Trinity talk in these languages here. In verse 27, all things have been handed over to me by my father, no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Wonderful. We get to know Jesus' dad. <laughs> Is that what he's saying? No. He's talking about God the Father. Because for eternity past, the Father in perfect glory has been communicating his full character and nature of being to the Son, and the Son has been reflecting that imperfect uh, in a perfect radiation of his glory back to the Father. Father communicates glory to the Son, Son communicates it back to the, now when I say communicate, that's just a weak word, it's, it's all we've got though to, to describe what's happening there. But in the same way that you might have a couple and they have a child, and if it's a boy and he grows up, oh he's a spitting image of his father. Yeah, we say that kind of like, well obviously not really, because he's got genes from both parents. So he might grow up and look kind of like his dad, but he's not a spitting image. He doesn't look like him perfectly. The son, though, perfectly looks like the father. He is the image of the father, where there is no other image. So what Jesus is saying is, if you want to know what God's like, look at me. And then the son, who perfectly reflects who the father is, who God, the eternal, self-existing God is, perfectly reflects him, became a man and came to earth. Dwell among us so that we could all see it too. If you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. For a much better explanation of everything I just tried to say, pick up Delighting in the Trinity by Michael Reeves. It's like 150 pages written for common people like me and you who don't understand language that they might have used thousands of years ago to describe the Trinity, and he describes it in such a beautiful way. I try to summarize that a little bit whenever we get to places that talk about the Trinity because this is what Jesus is doing. He is fully God. 
So when we find the real Jesus, that is who we find. And what is it that the real Jesus gives to those who find him? In a word, rest, because that's the word he uses. Come to me, all who are laboring, heavy laden, burdened, tired. Listen to Eugene Peterson uh, in his words as he wrote the message translation. The message, which he says is the Bible in contemporary language. Here's how he interpreted this. You tired, worn out, burned out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. In a word, Jesus gives us rest when we come to him. Sometimes it can be a popular grace-centered way to talk about Jesus. Like there's no qualifications to come to Jesus. And there is one. He gives us one right here actually. The only people he invites to come to him are those who labor and are heavy laden. So there is a qualification, it's just not what you might think. It's not a qualification for being good enough, it's actually a qualification for recognizing that you're, you're burdened enough to come to Christ. So if you are carrying heavy burdens this morning, you are the exact kind of person that Jesus reveals himself to. You're in the exact position to find the real Jesus this morning. He says, come to me. So what, do, what does he give? Well, he gives rest, but, but I think we might not have a great idea of what that is. What is the way that he gives us rest? Well, then he turns around and says he gives us a yoke. Now, a yoke, as Lynn reminded me this morning, is this first century Jewish way of talking about a rabbi's teaching. And so he would say, follow me was a way a, a rabbi would invite people to come and learn his teaching and learn his way of life and religion. And the yoke was kind of the teaching and the way of life that he would pass on to his disciples. So Jesus is saying, come to me and you'll find rest. Well, what does that rest look like? You know that yoke that they put on oxen as they plow the field? I'm gonna pull one of those on you. You think, no, thank you. Not the rest I'm looking for. He gives us a yoke. Now, rest. I'll admit, I'm not great at rest. I'm excited for next week because we're gonna talk more about Sabbath, what rest is. But I'm thinking, we come to Jesus, he says, I give you rest, and he describes rest as a yoke. He doesn't say, here's a couch, sectional, preferred, the corner seat. Here's a fuzzy blanket. Here's a phone. And it's a special phone. Doesn't have a phone number. No one can text you. But you can get on all the social media you want. And here's a remote and there's Netflix. And I've sent $10,000 of Uber Eats to your account. (laughs) Now rest. I'll be back in a little while. That's my kind of rest. That's not what Jesus says, though. It puts the yoke on you. It's what Eugene 
Peterson says, walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. He says in this uh, passage here, in verse 29, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. The word learn is kind of like the verb form of the noun form for disciple that shows up in the New Testament. A disciple is a learner. And what do they do? They learn. So come and, le- come and, and be discipled by me. Our view of discipleship ought to be restful. Right, sometimes I, I, think, I think sometimes we have a desire to grow in Christ. We have a desire to help people embrace spiritual disciplines and read the Bible. But if we're all honest, we walk away a little bit more tired from conversations like that. Okay, so um, he loves me. Come to the altar. Come to me who are, you know, heavy laden. And I got there and you just dumped spiritual to-do list on me. And now I feel even more exhausted than when I came. So what do I do? There's a way of being that Jesus is inviting us into here. And this way of being doesn't mean it's inaction. It doesn't mean we're not doing anything, but it means we're doing everything a little bit differently. Rest does not mean that we need to do nothing. It means that we need a new way of doing everything. That's what rest is. Rest doesn't mean do nothing. Because if rest means do nothing, there's some of you that I know what you're going through in life, and I have to look at you square in the face and just simply say, in a few years you might rest, but right now, sorry. But that's not what Jesus says. He says he's gonna give you rest right now if you come to him. There's some, Nick, if, I, if, <laughs> if it was doing nothing, I'd say sorry. You and Edie come back in a few years when your kids are a little more self-sufficient and you can get some. But rest doesn't mean we do nothing. Rest means we get a new way of doing everything. What's the new way? It's the way of Jesus. Come and learn from him. Come and learn from him a new way to do everything. A way of activity and action and work but it's not the kind of work that burns you out, bottoms you out, burdens you more. It's, the, it's a kind of way of being like, like Anne was praying this morning, like God, we know you're calling us to things, but help us to be still first. It's a way of being in which we're actually freed to do the very things God created us to do with the one God created us to do it with, with him. That's the invitation to come and find rest. It's not to stop doing everything in your life. It's to begin doing everything in your life with Jesus. To let him take the heavy burden off. Because you can't carry it. You can try, but you can't. But what he says is, the yoke that I'm gonna give you, the way of being and the way of doing things in this world that I'm gonna put on you, it's light. When you feel it, you feel the way of Jesus. He puts it on you. You can take a deep breath. And you realize what Eugene Peterson says, I I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. 
This means we're learning from him. We are being his disciples. Uh, John Mark Comer, who was a pastor in Portland, said we're his apprentices in his way of life. And Jesus gives to those who find him a whole new way to live. And this new way is not a burden. It's not too heavy. It's not soul crushing. It's restful. If all rest is, is stopping, then the best you can hope to do is once in a while stop from everything that feels burdensome. But then when you're done stopping and you start again, you jump right back into the burden. If you want constant rest from Jesus, we have to find a new way of doing everything, not just stop once in a while. So I'm praying this morning from this text that I said at the beginning this could be a lot of different sermons. It kind of felt like it was in some ways. But I hope you feel the invitation from Jesus to come to him. Not with answers. Maybe just with questions. Maybe not even with that. Maybe all you can do is show up. And come to him. And that's it. And say, Jesus, I'm here and I'm yours. Jesus, I'm here and I'm yours. And Jesus says, I'll teach you a whole new way of life. And that's what we're doing here. We're learning the way of Jesus together. There's not a guide. I don't have a discipling tool to just give you and say, if you would just do these five things, you've got it. Gosh, some, some of you have been burned out from that. You've been given the way. And it's been packaged and alliterated and put into practices and has a 90-day cycle. And if you do this with three other people every year for the rest of your life, and you go, I can't do that. I can't do that again. Please don't tell me to read four chapters a day again. I can't, I'm tired of that. I can't do it. What you need is an invitation to come and be with Jesus. You've come to the right place. This is a safe place to come be with Jesus. So let me pray for you this morning. <clears throat> Christ, I pray that you would right now in the heart of every person here affirm to them your great love. Whisper to them, you are my beloved with whom I am well pleased. Jesus, help us to learn your way of living in this world that is, if, if we get out of sync with your way, we pretty quickly get crushed. Lead us like David prayed in Psalm 139 in the way everlasting, the ancient way that leads to life. I pray for all those who are carrying heavy burdens this morning that they would be free, Jesus, to bring them to you and that you would give them relief. That doesn't mean you solve circumstances, which can be confusing to us, but it means you give us a new restful way of walking through those. And I pray that they would not just bring them to you, but God, that you'd give them a real community to share those hard things with. 
We weren't intended to do life alone. Thanks for loving us, Lord. We love you too.